Welcome to the 37th episode of The World of Running. I'm your host, Aditi Pandya. As athletes, we are quite conscious of our training process, be it miles per week, the specific paces, or the interval's duration. But training is not just about the f- how far or how fast we can run. It is also about how well and how quickly we bounce back. The backbone to achieve performance goals without getting injured is to have a good recovery strategy alongside with your training. More often than not, we are guilty of ignoring recovery altogether, especially when we are juggling our lives, work and running. Before we go any further in today's episode, I have a request for all our listeners. If you like our podcast, please leave a rating on your preferred channel. Also, do share with other fellow runners who are yet to discover us. If you like our podcast and are looking for even more tips to boost your running, head over to our YouTube channel, that is Geeks on Feet, and hit the subscribe button. We also have a very informative weekly newsletter that brings all the latest from the world of running straight to your inbox. You can sign up for our newsletter today and the link is in the show notes. In today's episode, we are going to explore the art and science of recovery, how recovery helps in better running performance, and how it keeps us injury-free. We will cover all aspects of recovery, from post-running activity to nutrition, from rest days to cross-training. Our guest for today's episode is Sage Rowdry. Sage Rautry is an experienced registered yoga teacher. She is a USA triathlete certified expert and a Roadrunners Club of America certified coach. She holds a PhD in English and is the author of multiple books. Some of them are The Athlete's Guide to Recovery, The Athlete's Guide to Yoga, The Athlete's Pocket Guide to Yoga. She also contributes to Runner's World and yoga journals. Sage competes in running events from 400 meters to the 50k and at triathlons. She raced for the Team USA at the 2008 Short Course Triathlon World Championship. Her coaching clients compete in running, ultras and multi-sport events including the Ironman World Championship. She is the co-owner of Carboro Yoga Company and teaches workshops on yoga for athletes nationwide. Hi Sage, welcome to today's episode. Hi Aditi, great to be here. So Sage, as I was talking to you earlier that, uh, you know, I've gotten a lot of inspiration uh, while reading your book earlier uh, when I was preparing for today's episode and uh, we've emulated from your books um, when we were writing and talking about topics on recovery. So for all my listeners uh, today, um, Sage's books are available online. So please pick it up. And if you are interested in um, understanding more about recovery, you should actually go and read through those pages. Um, So Sage, uh, you know, um, as I spoke that um, um, in your book, you talk about work recovery, right? And the cycle and various phases of recovery for runners. So can you, um, you know, um, 
can you talk about uh, what happens when we run a race or uh, we train hard? And if you can break down the work recovery cycle and um, the various phases that it has? Sure, absolutely. So training, the equation for training is that training is a combination of applying stress, applying some kind of work to your body um, to provoke it to grow stronger. But then the other half of the equation is recovery in which you give your body the time to adapt to the work you put into it. Um, And so there is no improvement without both parts of the equation. You can't just work and expect to get faster or stronger. And you also can't do nothing and expect to get faster or stronger. So we're always going through this cycle of application of stress and application of rest or work and recovery. Sure. So, um, and as as uh, we all know that uh, recovery and training are basically complementary to each other. And as you mentioned that uh, one aids to another. And in fact, in your book, you refer to training training is equals to stress plus rest, right? Mm-hmm. So um, uh, what is what is that recovery rest, uh, you know, has to be an integral part of the training. So if you can emphasize and mix up and talk about how to mix up hard runs, easy runs and the variations and help help the listeners understand better. Sure. So you know that at the end of your workout or your race, you're tired and you're slower than you are when you started uh, because you have put this application of stress into your body. It's a, it's a big output. Then you need time to come back up to your baseline and then to super compensate, which is the period in which your body has adapted to the stress that you put on it and and in in anticipation of there being more stress has gotten stronger, uh, fitter, faster. So when you're thinking about application of stress and rest across the week, you need to space out your harder runs, your harder training sessions, so that you're catching yourself in a period of super compensation. Like you're going higher and higher and higher. You don't want to put hard, 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 hard days all in a row and make yourself slower and slower and slower. It's easy enough, I think, to conceive of intellectually, but it's hard to do in practice because we don't have you know, a, a gauge that we can flip open and see the state of recovery in our system. So we have to um, find ways in which we can assess the state of our systems without, yeah, <laughs> just like checking the stats. Oh, I'm great. You know, you, you need to learn to tune into both the subtle and the somewhat less subtle uh, ways that your body is telling you whether it's ready for a hard workout. And I know we'll get into this, but the art there is that there's this philosophical element where human nature is to push and just keep adding the hard and it's not to sit back and let the work soak in, Um, which is a shame. But once you recognize that that is a pattern that all of us as humans have and as athletes have, we want to be go-getters in type A and, and do it and make it happen, that if you recognize, oh, sometimes doing less is far better. And if I take out a workout each week, or add an extra day before I do the next key workout, I will enhance my performance immeasurably more than if I just try to force and muscle my way through. So, um, so Sage, this is uh, 
This is really uh, interesting. And just for the benefit of our listeners, if you can give a high level understanding of what is super compensation, right? Because some of our listeners would be just starting to run. So for their benefit. Sure. So super comes, your body wants to be in homeostasis. It wants to maintain a baseline. That's the whole point of the system. It's finely tuned to bring you back to this balanced state of normal. And when we are applying the stress of a run, we wind up, like I said, getting slower and more tired at the end of the workout. And then your body will come back up to that baseline and keep going in anticipation of there being another stimulus coming down the road. Uh, Coach Steve Magnus, I think, put this really beautifully. He said, the point of your workouts is to mildly embarrass your body. (laughs) And so that's what's happening. Your body's been mildly embarrassed, like, ooh, that was harder than I am currently capable of rising to meet. So then I need to hit this stage of super compensation, thanks your body, uh, so that I won't be quite so embarrassed the next time, so that I'll, I'll be better able to handle that stress stimulus the next time. And that's what happens in super compensation. So super compensation is this window. And depending on the state of the athlete, their age, their experience, how big and hard the workouts are, what other stressors they have in their lives, this supercompensation may happen within 24 hours, 36 hours, 72 hours even. It could take a while. It's kind of a moving window depending on the whole system. But that's the stage where you want to apply the next stimulus so that you're already up a step before you re-embarrass your body and encourage it to grow back even stronger. Understandable. Thank you so much. So, um, Sage, now um, we also talk about, you know, again, like as you said, embarrass our body one more time of achieving um, a better stat or a better pace. Is So what is that ideal balance between easy and hard runs and uh, keep going at an optimal level? It absolutely depends on the athlete and the more experienced the athlete um, and the better attention that the athlete is able to pay to recovery, the more hard or key workouts we can put in a week. Um, But it absolutely depends. And if you read the book, you'll see there are a few charts giving examples, but it would be something like a hard day, an easy day, a hard day, an easy day, or a hard day, easy day, a moderate day an easy day, and then another hard day. It's like you wouldn't put your track workout on Monday and your long run on Tuesday. You put your track workout on Tuesday and your long run on Saturday so that there's some space in between the two. So depending on the athlete, you may only really have two key workouts in a week. And one might be focused on speed or pace, and the other one might be focused on endurance and going long, depends on the event and the athlete. But um, then other athletes who have a lot more practice could fit in three or even four hard days in a week. Yeah. I haven't reached that stage yet. (laughs) (laughs) Those days are long past me because as you age, you'll need to do less hard workouts in a week. And I know we'll talk about masters athletes, but that's, that's certainly one consideration for uh, athletes over 40 or like me over 50 is keeping the quality, but much less quantity of these key workouts. Sure. So, um, so Sage, now, uh, you know, I want to also talk about how to avoid overtraining, right? And you describe mm-hmm. under recovery and overtraining as a sl- slippery slope in a spectrum. So mm-hmm. how do we achieve this fine balance of between overachieving or and overtraining to mm-hmm. gain maximum results? 
Right. To go back to the embarrassment analogy, you need to have this application, embarrass your body, but you don't want to embarrass it so much that it's totally ashamed and wants to run and hide in the closet. And that's kind of what happens in overtraining is you keep applying more stress at the wrong time under recovery and your body can hit this kind of cascade like a person would where they just shut down psychologically. Your body can shut down physiologically and say like, no more, I'm getting sick or I'm getting injured or I'm just like a feeling totally burnt out and lose all interest in, in continuing to train. So we want to not over embarrass or overtrain the body, but we do have to have some level of stress, some level of embarrassment, some level of overreaching in order to encourage adaptation and growth. Because remember, your body always wants to come back to homeostasis and neutral to that you know, happy baseline. Um, so it's a fine balance and it, it can be a tough thing to hit. Uh, and often the very first thing we need to do when we suspect that we are over training over embarrassing our bodies is take some preemptive time off. And that's so antithetical to most athletes psychology. Yeah, they just want to push and do. Mm -hmm. So I just want to ask you that, you know, uh, as like, for for runners who are who, who are going for their first debut marathon or who, for whom the cycles are yet to start uh what are those some of those early signs an athlete should look at that might indicate that they are entering a state of um overtraining sure many of them are um they kind of read as psychological more than physiological and disrupted sleep is one of the big ones yeah. and you know, if you don't sleep well, then it's even harder to do your next workout up to the quality that you wanted to. And then that becomes a downward trend pretty quickly. So um, not being able to sleep well, a feeling underrested in general, generally being cranky or crabby or impatient. <laughs> um, all of that is another sign that you may be overdoing it and need to preemptively pull out one or two of the harder workouts in your week. You can still go for your run, just don't try to hit your paces. Don't don't do the intervals. Just take an easy conversational run instead of having it, trying to wedge it into the key workout slot of the week. So those are a few of the things to look for. Um, ultimately, performance is the is the real indicator of how you're doing. And if you continue to perform as expected or better, then that's a good sign. And if your performance starts to decline, like you can't hit those numbers that you were looking for in the course of the week or, or in your race, then that's a sign that you need to pull back and do less and, and emphasize recovery so that your body can come back up to the baseline and then start to grow above it. So, you know, you actually answered to my next question, which was key strategies to recommend and prevent overtraining, right? And uh, you rightly said that uh, uh, maybe you still go out and run, but don't try to hit those spaces, right? So um, do you have anything else to add to, to you know, signs of how to um, uh, prevent overtraining? Yeah. Taking things out, not only of your workout week, but of the general stress that you have in your life, because all stress will ultimately resolve itself on a physiological level as stress. 
cortisol hormone coming into your cells, telling them that something is up. Uh, and that is a big demand of, of energy on your body. So the less stress that you can have coming at you from whatever angle, whether it's from your running and your feelings about your running or your work schedule or your family obligations, um, often saying no to things or delaying them till later is a really good idea. Um, getting to bed earlier is good. And then checking your nutrition is really critical. Nutrition is a huge uh, factor in your ability to recover. Uh, so sometimes it's like taking the, the focus off of hitting your key workouts and into all of these supporting things that you could be doing, getting to bed a little bit earlier, prepping your meals so that you have you know, a good variety of healthy foods to eat, adequate protein over the course of your week is really critical. Um, and paying attention to all of these little things will often help you feel like you're more in control and then your stress goes down and then you, you're able to hit the numbers that you were wanting to do. Great. So, um, so Sage, I also want to now shift our attention to uh, soreness versus injury, right? And mm -hmm. um, as runners, we are constantly sore. So we might just feel that, okay, yesterday was a hard run and so the soreness is a little longer, especially when you are in a, a marathon training block. And yep. sometimes we, uh, we um, you know, mistake the inception of an injury to mm -hmm. soreness, right? And only right. to go back and pay a heavy price. So how do we distinguish between soreness and injury? Great question, Aditi. A few um, rules of thumb. One is that if your feeling is in the belly of the muscle, like away from the joints, like the back center of your thigh, your hamstrings are sore, or your quads are even sore to the touch, that is generally better sign that it's just delayed exercise soreness, delayed onset muscle soreness, supposed to exercise. And if the feeling instead is up toward a joint, like it's at your knee or it's at your sitting bone or it's at your ankle or it's in a very specific spot, that is a sign more of an incipient injury and less of just general post-exercise soreness. I'm pointing my finger because that's another way that you can kind of tell if things are getting um, too far into the it's not soreness it's actual injury is if it's something you could cover with a finger you know if you if you go and you do a hill workout um and your glutes are sore or your quads are sore you do downhill running your quads are sore it's something you could cover with the palm of your hand that's generally a better sign like a big diffuse broad um yeah. soreness than if it's something that you can really pinpoint with your finger i'm remembering years ago when i had a stress fracture and it got so specific i could push on it and it would feel like a bruise on the bone because it's pretty much what it was. But it was it was so specific that it was really just a fingertip sized area. So that's another um, bad sign. Also, if it's specific to just one side of your body versus both sides, because you can just intuit that if you are exercising and creating small tears in the muscles and creating inflammation on purpose as part of this embarrassment of your body so that it has to grow back stronger, it's going to be a bilateral thing. It will happen on both sides of your body relatively evenly. Um, but if something is feeling very specific to one area of your body, that's a sign that it might be an injury. And when you learn to read these signs and notice these signs, even just two or three days off, or two or three days with very, very low intensity running can make a world of difference. It's just yeah. so tough to, it's so tough to do, but it's easy to understand. Ah, a little preemptive rest might be just the ticket. 
and and we are such um, you know restless runners especially when when the and every time the race is round the corner right so it is always yeah. you're running against time and sure yeah, yeah. So now I want to actually talk about stressors and um, you mm-hmm. know I in, I read in your book that there are two types of stressors that is physiological and psychological and uh, psychological stressors end up converting into physiological stressors mm-hmm. so how can we identify and mitigate these stressors Yeah. Um, often this happens in conversation with a counselor of some kind. It could be a therapist. It could be your coach. It could even be your running partners um, or yourself, a conversation with yourself, either in um, self-reflection or in journaling, thinking through like even just listing, where are you spending the bulk of your energy in the day? Like <laughs> making a list, uh, looking at your calendar and seeing how your day is spent um, and what the things are that just automatically get you up on your guard. Those are, those are your major stressors in the day. And some, in some cycles of your life, it's going to be your work calendar is very busy. Or if you're a student, your school calendar is very busy. Uh, if there are big projects or deadlines coming up, it's, it's really useful to recognize what the flow of that work stress cycle is if you're planning a wedding or moving house, um, it doesn't even have to be a negative stress, like getting a divorce or you know downsizing your house for money reasons. It could be a positive stress. Like I said, like you're getting married or you're having a baby or you're getting a pet. All of these still are stressors and energy drains for you. So you need to look at the big picture of what the cycle is of your work stressors, of your personal stressors, and then try to match your training stressors so that they're not happening at those points in the year. Yeah. So while most of our listeners are recreational, uh, but we take our running very seriously. Yes. And, uh, you know, there were some stats that came out that this time uh, uh, close to 9,000 marathoners uh, were running um, Tata Mumbai Marathon, right? And uh, it was around 8,700 change. I don't remember the exact numbers, but uh, it's it's gone um, uh, multifolds, right? Like, and especially after uh, in the last two, three years, I've seen that the importance of... Uh, of health and fitness and being fit is so high. So, um, you know, I want to now talk about uh, recovery techniques, right? And uh, you've suggested a framework uh, for keeping stress at bay uh, before major races. And if you can explain that framework to our listeners. Well, let me see. Will you remind me what my framework is? You may have read the book. Of course, saying no. So it's a, it talks about saying no, goals checking and, and yeah. then thinking ahead and categorizing and okay. stuff. Right. Saying no is reducing the amount of stress that you can control, getting it out of the way, clearing your schedule as much as you can, making room for good sleep, for eating well. And just generally, yeah, blocking off some time, almost putting up an invisible bubble around yourself, uh, especially in that period of the taper and the race itself. Um, a goal check is to be sure that your goals are set appropriately and that they are part of a spectrum. So you might have this super secret goal of achieving a, like a, a landmark time, running a sub four hour marathon, a sub three hour marathon. But it's also good to have smaller goals. Like if you can't make the sub three, maybe a 315 would be fantastic. Yeah. Maybe a 330 would be fantastic. Um, 
you you're setting yourself up for failure when your goal is not based in reality and not matched with your current abilities. So smart goal setting, um, doing things, uh, setting goals that are reasonable and that are a spectrum. So there's there's maybe one super secret goal that would be like kind of the moonshot goal, the pie in the sky goal, um, but then a few goals that are like more reasonable. Um, and remembering that ultimately it's a treat to be able to run. And for most of us, it is not our job, Our livelihood doesn't depend on it. And it's just a blessing to have the health to go and run any distance at all. Um, so kind of keeping things in the sense of a big context can be really useful. Um, thinking ahead into um, the future of the race or even a key workout and naming to yourself any fears or worries that you have about it can be really useful. Um, and then categorizing these fears and worries. Are they in your control or are they out of your control? So maybe you had some problem with gastrointestinal distress in a marathon, which is like the number one reason that people don't achieve their goals in the marathon is something to do with nutrition or hydration. Their stomach gets upset. Um, so that's kind of in your control is you can figure out what nutrition source works for you, what hydration schedule works for you, and what pacing works for you so that you're able to process the food and ultimately then to sustain a pace over the course of the race rather than going out so fast that you wind up upsetting your stomach because you were not able to process the food that you did take in. So food is for most of us in our control. Weather is not in our control, but pacing for the weather is in our control. So thinking ahead um, and either writing out in conversation with yourself and journaling or talking with your coach or your training partners about how you would handle any of these um, anticipated problems during the race can be hugely calming and um, stress reducing. And then when you do encounter these issues in the course of a race, which the longer the race, the more issues inevitably are going to arise, the more things are going to go off plan. Um, you already have a plan for how you're going to deal with them. And ultimately, uh, it's useful to recognize that the only thing you can control is your attitude. <laughs> so remembering your goal, remembering your intentions um, uh, of gratitude, maybe for the health and strength of your body, is ultimately um, the one thing you can control is to try to feel happy about the, the blessing of being able to be out there and running it all. Yeah. So when you were when you were just describing these things, and I remember, um, you know, Kipchoge, and we all look up to Kipchoge, mm -hmm. and he said that the power we have the best power, and that power is to say no. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Go on. I was I was going to say one um, one way to reframe saying no because no is a negative word is to think about all the things that you're saying yes to when you say no to something. So you're saying yes to your running, you're saying yes to your recovery, you're saying yes to achieving your goals by even temporarily clearing your plate. So you've said no to any extra stressors around your key performance. Definitely, definitely. And 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 I, I feel whether we are recreational runners or running at, at an elite level, um, the, the, the gravity and the intensity at what we are uh, giving giving our body is the same, right? Like we... Mm -hmm maybe the paces would be different, but the seriousness and giving to the race is the same, right? The same authenticity. Mm -hmm. um, so I also have read, Sage, about active recovery, right? Mm -hmm. And um, can you explain this concept of active recovery and how it benefits uh, athletes, especially runners? 
Sure. Um, active recovery is some kind of movement. That's basically it. It's some kind of movement. It's not another workout in your week. And that's where we often get into trouble is we think, oh, I'm going to pay attention to my recovery and go out for a light run. But we wind up picking up the pace because we see somebody that we decide to race out on the road or we um, or we go with our training partners and just fall into our default medium pace. Active recovery is something far slower, like maybe walking instead of running. It is something that you probably you shouldn't need to wash your hair after you do. Like if you're sweating to the point where you need to wash your hair, it's too, it's too much of a workout. If you need to um, jump in the shower as soon as you get back, it's too much of a workout. Should be something really, really light. Um, and it's a way to increase circulation, to reduce your soreness because you've got enhanced blood flow to your muscles, but it should be super, super light. So think walking or jogging instead of running. And this is your chance to go for a conversational run or walk with a friend or a child or somebody who isn't going to provoke you to turn it into another faster workout. Got it. So, um, so Sage, as a coach, when you're working with your runners and mentees, so you might have seen some methods of recovery would be working better for, for them as against others, right? So uh, what recovery methods should runners look at and which are, you know, the most important for runners especially? Sure. The very most important is to uh, sleep lots, to eat really well, and to reduce stress. Beyond that, whatever you do that seems to work for you and is legal is is fine. It just, it, it may not actually physiologically work the way you think it does. And it could be anything from self-massage to drinking tart cherry juice. There are all kinds of things that people do um, that may not be clinically proven to enhance their recovery, but if they believe in it, the placebo effect is proven and strong. And if, if it makes them happy to get a massage every third day, super, get a massage every third day. If an hour of meditation a day seems to make them feel better recovered, great, let them do that. Um, number one, sleep. Number two, food. Number three, reduction of stress. And if you have money to spend on massages, I suggest you also take that money to a sports nutritionist and check that your diet is at the top of its game or pay somebody to prep your food for you so that you have appealing, appetizing, protein-rich food to fuel your training. Then if you want to spend the rest on your massage therapist, great. So I, I want to talk and specifically about how sleep helps in recovery, right? Mm -hmm. And if you can just throw some light on sleep, uh, because trust me, most of our runners who might be listening right now are recreational and they have a full-time job, a family right. and, and, and running, right? So, um, and sometimes uh, as fellow runners, we also make them feel guilty if they miss out on, you know, we run in a bunch of, we have a bunch of friends running together. Yep. And if one misses, there's always the other five who'll say, oh, how, how could you miss out? Right? So it's yep. just that, you know, prioritizing sleep over a run is absolutely fine. So if you can just throw some light there. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right that recreational runners have this major distinction from professional runners whose job is to do their running and who then don't also have to go and work 40, 60, 80 hours a week on top of what they're doing. So the, the pros sleep a lot, a lot, a lot. And they may also nap every afternoon. And that is uh, the 
that is one of the major distinctions and major benefits of being paid for your running is that you don't have to be wedging all these other things into your day. So generally everybody needs to sleep more than they currently are. And it would be lovely if we could all sleep until we wake up naturally. But in the, increasing the amount of your sleep by even 30 minutes a night can make a huge difference. And it's one of these things, if you just put a little bit of faith into it and work on it, you see what a difference it, it makes for your running, how much pressure you feel, how you are able to post better paces and put up better numbers. And then you believe in it more. It becomes a positive spiral or a snowball that, um, that helps, uh, that like fulfills its own prophecy. If um, there's a good rule of thumb that I like, and it, it may be a little, uh, a little too big, but this is a, a goal that we could work for, is that the number of miles that you're running in a week, so you may have to do some conversion into miles here, but the number of miles that you're running into in a week is the number of minutes per night that you should be sleeping extra. So if you're like, if you run a, um, let's see, like an 80K week, that's uh, probably you need another 50 minutes of sleep per night. If you're running a hundred mile week, that would be a hundred minutes more per night. And that, you know, nobody uh, other than the pros is generally running a hundred mile week, but those are the people who really do pay that much extra attention to their recovery. And that's on top of what your, your personal unique baseline physiological need for sleep is, which is probably somewhere between seven and nine hours a night. So, and then you would add on your 30 minutes or your 45 minutes or your hour. So basically the naps, right? If you're missing out mm -hmm. at night, then the naps just come in handy. The so, naps absolutely count. Yeah. So the other thing you spoke is nutrition, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you, you, you did speak about how important the nutrition is. So if you can throw some light with respect to how nutrition helps in a faster recovery. Sure. Um, nutrition gives you the tools that your body needs to help itself into supercompensation, to rebuild muscle, to increase your blood volume, your ability to uptake oxygen. All of this happens when you're giving yourself the fuel that you need. Um, in general, athletes don't eat enough and they don't eat enough protein as well. So we need to pay extra attention, especially if you eat a vegetarian or vegan diet to getting adequate amounts of protein. It's generally as much as you can, but here's where having a sports nutritionist can be super helpful as a sports dietitian, review your diet um, and make suggestions for ways that you can take in adequate calories and take in adequate calories in the right proportions, generally with more protein. Um, there is a condition that we now call red S relative energy deficiency in sport, which is related to anorexia, but it's a bigger thing than that. And I love the term relative energy deficiency because it's just putting things almost into a formula. We need X amount of calories in order to perform well, to fuel our running, to fuel our recovery. And if you don't take in X amount of calories, then there's a relative deficiency and you're going to wind up driving your performance down instead of lifting it up. Got it. Got it. So I also want to talk um, about supplements, right? And I know mm -hmm. some of my, I, I mean, in every running circuit, there'll be folks who are naturally gifted and yeah. they don't believe in supplements and, and they just run beautifully. And mm -hmm. then there are some of us who, who need supplements, otherwise we cramp up, otherwise a lot of things come come in, uh, under the radar. So if you can just throw some light about supplements and why one should have it. 
especially right. when you are, uh, you know, progressing from a half to a full to an ultra. Right. Like right. So supplements are just generally supplemental, like the things out that you would add to your body outside of your diet. Um, so there we could separate them from like taking in electrolytes as part of your hydration plan, because I wouldn't categorize that quite as a supplement because that's uh, taking in sodium is a necessary part of your diet just regularly. Um, here in the States, a lot of athletes take supplements like um, to up their uh, vitamin and mineral intake. But if you can eat a balanced and varied diet, you don't need to add that, or they'll take a multivitamin in the hopes that it's going to, yeah, like fill in whatever gaps in their diet they have. It would be much better instead of trying to plug that gap with a pill to focus on getting it straight from your food. Um, yeah, most uh, multivitamins aren't gonna do much for your running. If they make you happy, great. You know, they're not going to hurt anything, but it's mostly just going to pass straight through your body. Um, there are a couple of supplements that are targeted, especially for recovery, like taking in creatine, which can actually be a useful supplement, especially for vegan and vegetarian runners, um, because you're not getting much creatine. It comes from animal products. Um, so that's a way that you can rebuild muscle. Um I take only one supplement. It's an algae oil pill. So it's like the equivalent of taking a fish oil pill. So it's omega-3 fatty acids. Um, I, and I do eat like some cold water fish, but not to the level that you, where I would be getting it from my natural diet. And that can um, have some anti-inflammatory properties, but mostly it's um, just kind of nice for brain health. <laughs> I feel like it makes a difference. It's not hurting me. It's not crazy expensive. Um, so that's the, the one thing that I do. But um, it's worth, it's worth experimenting and seeing what works for you. If something you feel really makes a difference, that's great. It's probably not going to hurt you. But here in the States, at least, the supplement market is completely unregulated. And there's no way to be yeah. sure what you're putting into your body, whether it's been clinically proven to work or whether the thing that has been clinically proven to work is actually in the supplement that says it's in there. Plus, if you are competing um, at a certain level where you would be subject to drug testing, you could, you're always the one responsible ultimately for what you put in your body or even on your body if you're using some kind of massage cream that has a banned substance in it that's going to jettison your career in horrible ways. So it's always useful to give a really clinical look at what you're using and make sure that it's on a clear list if you're subject to drug testing and then just see how it lands in your body. If you think it works and you can afford it, great. Sure. And, uh, you know, you lastly, I want to talk about massages and hot mm -hmm. and cold water uh, showers mm -hmm. and bath, right? Like ice baths and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, I mean, as you said, some of them might have a placebo effect, but uh, yeah. if it works, it works. So uh, to what extent, um, you know, where you should be uh, resorting to these things? I think that they are low down the list uh, unless we're talking about like just taking a warm bath or sitting in the hot tub for a little bit. Um, those are very pleasant activities that can help you relax and unwind before bed. Say you're drinking some chamomile tea in the warm bath, playing soft music. Awesome. That's going to help you sleep better. So there it's a, a big help. Um, athletes do sometimes like to take a cold plunge or sit in an ice bath. The, the more recent science on that shows that people actually did better sitting in a room temperature bath 
they recovered faster and were able to perform better on subsequent tests than sitting in an ice bath. So that then raises the question, why would you sit in an ice bath? And the answer I often hear from athletes is, because it makes me feel tough because it's, it's giving me tools to cope with stress to which I would respond, hey, why aren't you getting that from your workouts? Because your key workouts ought to be giving you the tools to cope with stress and making you feel tough and capable. It, does, it shouldn't need to be this other thing that's, let's be honest, pretty unpleasant to do, <laughs> you know, and, and adding more stress to your life. So I would um, say prioritize in that category of cold versus warm bath, prioritize the warm bath, prioritize the pleasant massage, not the like, deep tissue, hard pounding massage that leaves you sore. Do the things that feel good, that are relaxing, that are de-stressing, that are not just piling on more stress to your body. Try to get your stress very specifically in um, ways that mimic the stress you're going to have in your race. If your race is a short race and you're focused on speed, your, your major stress should come from speed workouts. If your race is an ultra endurance event and it's going to be being out there for a long time and coping with say different terrain or weather situations, then those are the stressors you should seek out. Not going in a cold plunge, not having a, a super deep tissue massage. Got it. So my next question is going to move to yoga and meditation mm -hmm. and because you've written about it and it is my favorite topic, right? So personally, I feel, uh, um, I mean, uh, so again, right, meditating and doing yoga is a way of de-stressing to me personally, mm -hmm. right? So I, I generally make it a point to meditate um, every night and I, I luckily and I've been fortunate to do it religiously and I feel yeah. it has helped me. And uh, I'm not sure about uh, how, um, you know, currently uh, runners, runners, whether they are doing it or not, but what are the benefits of restorative, restorative yoga uh, for athletes, particularly in runners? Right. It's fantastic as a way to de-stress, as a way to develop better presence, which is super useful in a running application as well as in your life. Um, and the key is that this needs to be very gentle yoga. This isn't a rigorous practice that makes you sweat. It shouldn't stress you out. <laughs> it should relax you. So restorative yoga is like lying around with pillows and blankets and holding a shape for five to 20 minutes. That feels really pleasant, like putting your legs up the wall or putting your legs on the sofa and spreading out your arms and letting your chest get a passive stretch. It's not... Um, handstands and downward facing dog and getting your foot behind your head kind of yoga. It's, it's far more mellow. Um, and that is giving your nervous system a chance to skew toward the parasympathetic side. So it has the sympathetic side, which is the fight or flight response, the action side of your nervous system, and then the parasympathetic side, which is the relaxation response. And we need to get into that mode in order for deep restoration to happen in our bodies. And restorative yoga, gentle yoga, seated meditation, uh, slow walking meditation, all of these are ways to get into that mode. Sure. And uh, your book on yoga is available to folks and runners in India as well. So um, 
anybody who's listening and everyone, I think you should try and 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 read the book as well. Uh, while I'm completely convinced that yoga and meditation helps me, but you get a shot on it too. So, um, so um, this one is for yoga, and my next one was on meditation and breathing exercise, right, as a support mm-hmm. for recovery. So, right. uh, what thoughts would you have on on you know deep breathing and and meditation? I think finding any breathing exercise that works for you is a good entry point to meditation. And there are so many different ways that you could meditate. Um, But if you are paying attention to your breath or counting your breaths, that's a form of mantra meditation right there. So it's kind of a double duty, um, multitasking, both to get in touch with your breath so that you can use it in your race to good effect. And also calming your nervous system via the mechanism of your breath to get into the parasympathetic mode, plus this um, fantastic amount of focus that you get in meditation, you get just from doing a breathing exercise. So this could be as simple as um, applying a ratio to your breath where you feel the inhalation lasts for four or six and the exhalation lasts a little longer, like six or eight and doing 10 rounds of breath where you breathe into a count of six and you breathe out to a count of eight. That's a fantastic like mini break in your day at work. You don't, you can just sit at your desk and do it. If you're on the train, you can do it. Um, running, um, paying attention to your breath, not making your breath do anything in particular during your workout, but recognizing how your breath and your stride mesh together at your various paces is a form of breath exercise and breath meditation that you can literally do during your workout and knowing where your breath and your legs are in the cycle and how they work together can be really useful if you start to feel like you're losing it (laughs) and and, uh, things are are taking a, a turn toward the negative you have this goal to get back toward ah when I'm running at the appropriate tempo pace for this workout for this race I'm taking you know, five steps on the inhalation and five steps on the exhalation, whatever, whatever that is. And five is just a random number. Whatever you do is what you should seek to come back to. And getting to know it in your next few workouts is a really good homework assignment after listening to this podcast, because that's giving you um, extra familiarity with the tools in your toolkit that will help you be a better runner. So, um, you know, early on, we spoke about age and recovery, and especially Mm -hmm. recovery gets on to be slower as we age, right? So um, I have one question for my uh, master's runners, right? So what should they be doing as recovery so that they can recover at an optimal level or maybe a little faster and in a beneficial way? Uh, And this is especially for the master's runners. Mm -hmm. The great thing about being a master's runner is that you have this well of experience and you probably don't get to be running in your 40s or 50s without having seen a lot, (laughs) seen a lot of injuries, seen a lot of burnout, um, been injured and burned out yourself. So you have this unique um, experience that lets you read your own system better than somebody who's newer to the sport might who has to go and and learn all those hard lessons for themselves. So trust your intuition, trust your body, do a little bit less in the week, maybe instead of fitting three or even four key workouts into your week, emphasize two, sometimes spacing out your long runs. So instead of doing a long run um, three weeks out of every four, you do two out of every four or put them 10 days apart instead of seven days apart. That's worked really well with some of the master's runners I've coached. Um, 
spacing things out, you can still have the intensity. You just have it less frequently over the course of your training cycle. Uh, and then with that, you're meeting it with all the attention to the key components of recovery with sleeping plenty, with eating well, uh, with de-stressing. The, the other beauty I see of being a master's athlete myself and coaching master's athletes is you have this, um, this extra level of uh, savvy and experience in the race itself. Like the, the mental toughness is just yeah. so well honed. It's, it's really a, a beautiful thing to see. And you can get by on a lot less training than you think because you have so much experience with how to stay present and focused uh, when it really counts. So, uh, Sage, with this, I have one last question for you. And, uh, you know, you are a coach and an athlete and, and you have an illustrious career with respect to being a, a teacher, an author. And um, um, I mean, um, it, it's wonderful reading your book. It's wonderful talking to you. But I have one question, which is how does one make recovery part of their life? It takes faith and it takes patience. And when you have the faith to be patient and give your body the time to recover, then it proves itself to you. So this could be a challenge to all of your listeners to try sleeping a little more, try eating a little bit more protein, maybe take out one workout a week and see what happens and see how you feel. Because running is, um, for most of us, not our full-time job. It's supposed to be a positive hobby in your life. It helps you achieve optimal health. It gives you a great social network. It lets you feel proud and uh, capable in your body, but it should be a positive thing. It shouldn't be something that makes you obsessive and cranky and difficult to be around. So think, um, zoom out, think really big picture and have the faith and patience to do a little bit less and see if that doesn't make you even happier with your running and yourself. So this is the advice I should I should be taking myself because I'm guilty of a lot of things that he spoke. So, um, so Sage, um, lastly, uh, how can our uh, listeners reach out to you? I have a website at sageroundtree.com, S-A-G-E-R-O-U-N-T-R-E-E.com. And there's a web page keyed to the Athlete's Guide to Recovery at that website slash recovery. It has um, some resources that uh, readers can use to follow along, do a breath meditation like we discussed in this episode, who... Um, you can also find some yoga nidra, which is guided meditation, uh, some yoga that you can do before, during, and after your run. All this is going to be up in the next month or so because the second edition of the book is coming out in early March 2024. So I am actively working on building that up right now, but there is a placeholder website right now. So readers could, or listeners could come right now and get a little bit of this information. And then when the full page is up, I'll let them know. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. These were fantastic questions. I would like to thank all our listeners and if you like this episode and would like to know more on the world of running, please subscribe to our channel and if you know of someone who is starting their journey into fitness and running, do share our podcast link with them. I would like to thank my friend Arvind for editing, sound recording and taking care of the post-production for this podcast. If you have any suggestions on improving the content of the show, or topics you would like us to cover, please share it by emailing us at connect at geeksonfeet.com or you can also reach us through Twitter, Facebook 
और इंस्टाग्राम